Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Heather Cox Richardson on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Wounded Knee, Party Politics, and the Road to an American Massacre. Of all the events in American history, two are far and away the most painful, those being slavery on the one hand, and the near-genocidal campaign against Native Americans on the other. We've done a pretty good job with the former. The slaves were emancipated, their descendants won their civil rights, and these same descendants are equal in many ways to other Americans today. And almost all Americans agree that slavery was wrong. None of this can be said about the campaign against the American Indians. The Indians weren't emancipated, they were removed to reservations. Their descendants struggled but they never really won their civil rights, and they remain in reservations today. And, of course, they are not equal to other Americans by most measures. And what's worst of all, many Americans refuse to believe that the U.S. was wrong in killing, sequestering, and impoverishing the Native Americans. All this is rather sad, particularly in light of books such as Heather Cox Richardson's Wounded Knee, because we know what happened, and we know how calculated the American campaign in the 19th century against the Plains Indians was. Heather does a terrific job of showing us exactly how naked politics and the politics of self-interest worked to destroy the Plains Indians in the later 19th century. It's a really sobering read for anyone interested in this period of history. And so without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Heather. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Terrific. How about you? I'm, I'm really great. Uh, it's very, we're having a very nice, I guess it's almost summer now here in Iowa. And um, you are near Boston, right? I am. And we're finally getting summer too. Although we had quite an early spring and it got real hot, then it got real cold. And now we're back on fun again. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So I should tell our listeners that we have Heather Cox Richardson on the show today. And we will be talking about her new book, Wounded Knee, Party Politics and the Road to an American Massacre. I uh, don't know a lot, even though I am from, I guess, what should be called the American West. Uh, I don't know a lot of 19th century American history of the American West. So it was a great pleasure for me to read this terrifically written book about a very, very important, you know, what I think is a neglected uh, topic. I was thinking before the show, you know, there are two great tragedies in American history. One is slavery and the other is the so-called removal of the American Indians. And one actually gets a lot of press, that is slavery, and the other one not so much, which I think is a shame. So we should probably thank Heather for writing this book, and we should thank all historians who work on this important topic. Heather, why don't you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm like you, Marshall. I am not from the West. I'm from Maine, and I come from (laughs) a, a culture where people told stories all the time growing up, and they told stories about people who were alive, but also people who seemed like they were alive, even though they were from the Civil War and the middle of the 19th century and even earlier. So 
when it came time uh, for me to to look at historical topics, uh, the West was very attractive to me. Um, Although my first book didn't start out there, I actually am primarily a political historian. I went away to college and fell in love with history and was fortunate enough to work with um, David Herbert Donald and later Bill Ganap, uh, terrific historians both, who encouraged me to, to look at national politics that I was really interested in. And that then led me to the West. So I ended up there, uh, at least for this book, uh, a long way away from the coast of Maine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did, how did you come to write this book? My last book talked about the role of the American West in the reconstruction of America, and in that I got very fond of Sitting Bull, uh, a Sioux from what is now South Dakota, and uh, got to respect him very much and learned a lot about him, read everything I could find on him and everything that he had said. So then I was teaching a Western history course one day. I teach the, the history of the American West at my university, and a student asked me to explain wounded me when I had been so um, eloquent, if you will, about Sitting Bull and how powerful the Sioux were and what great fighters they were. How did they get so badly crushed at Wounded Knee only, you know, 30 years after they had really ruled the Northern Plains? And I felt like I didn't really have a good explanation. I had sort of the general explanations that you see in textbooks or that we saw in uh, Dee Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee that whites really didn't like Indians, but beyond that, I didn't actually know the nuts and bolts of what had happened. So I started to look into it, fully expecting that I would find that the Sioux were a terrible military threat to the U.S. settlers, and that the Army had had to go out in 1890 to defend settlers, and it took me about six hours to find out that was completely Mm -hmm. wrong. And then once I got into the project and sort of fell back on my political history background, looking at the Benjamin Harrison papers and Congress and and the newspapers, the national newspapers, the story that I found leaped out at me as being very different than anything we had said before, but as a story that fit – really well in what we know about the nation in the late 19th century. And it seemed to me it was time to tie the West into the national story in a particular way, not just in the general way that I had done in Western mathematics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's a very interesting approach, and and that is a good way to come to a topic with a question that uh, you think you've answered, but of course you haven't. I do that on on a daily basis, I think. I could write a book a day. (laughs) Why we we teach, right? Yeah. So so you begin the story – well before 1890, um, actually uh, even well before the Civil War. Perhaps you could just begin by setting the stage for us. Um, the the story is a story uh, is two stories really. Uh, even on the surface, there are, I hope a number of stories below the surface, but it's both the story of the Indian population and what happened at Wounded Knee. And it's also the story of American politics and how the two of them go together. So the the story really starts with the Civil War and what Northerners, the Union, constructed during the Civil War, their vision of America. And that vision of America was based on a dramatic development of the economy through the use of natural resources, but with the government pushing very hard for economic development. Of course, this is what the North puts in place during the Civil War. Um, But one of the things that we tend to overlook is that the North and the the Union during the Civil War worked very hard to organize the West. So that in 1865, the West, the Plains West, is 
pretty much undivided. It's held by the, the Indian tribes in the plains and in the mountains. By 1865, that land has been carved up almost to what it is today. There have been there are a few changes since then, but that's during the Civil War. So from 1861 to 1865, the Union really throws itself into the West, and it does that, of course, because the war itself was fought over control of the West. Mm-hmm. So the book really starts in 1865 and the the way the North envisioned the country, and they had this this idea that they could create a world of equality for. Americans, for most Americans, as long as they promoted economic development. Well, we know that's not how it worked out, but that was the idea. Their problem was that they had this barrier in the plains of Indians who held their land and who needed to hold their land in order to preserve their own economy. And in 1865, we all everyone talks about the, the end of the Civil War. In fact, there is another war going on in 1865, and that's the war with the Indians. Mm-hmm. William Tecumseh Sherman goes straight from the South out to manage the division of the Missouri, which is the part of the military that oversees the plains. And the war from the between the North and the South gets transferred to the West. So the book really starts there, and the fact that for the Americans who have just won the Civil War, they look at the fact they have just poured out enormous amounts of blood and treasure to win that war against what they see as a southern elite. They've managed to do that, and here they are poised to go take over the West and create this great new society, and they're stopped by people that they see as savages. Mm -hmm. And so the book starts with that idea that on the northern part, which is the federal government, of course, the idea that these people have to be pushed out of the way in order to make that vision come true. And it starts there and then pushes all the way through. Mm -hmm. The story pushes all the way through to about 1900. Mm -hmm. Let's just pause for a second to talk a little bit about what these American politicians and settlers believed, because I think something that the listeners will know is that um, the Civil War, although it was fought about many things, it was uh, fought about uh, slavery, and the notion was is that uh, American labor should be free labor. Uh, and this idea, as I understand it, was then applied to the West. And the way it applied to the Indians was they uh, were free in a sense, but they weren't the right kind of labor. They weren't doing the right kind of thing. Maybe you could expand upon that a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad that you have emphasized there that the Civil War was fought about slavery. It was fought about slavery. There's there's just no room to wiggle on that one at all. But slavery was tied into the idea of the economy, and not in the old-fashioned way people thought about, uh, you know, in the 1920s. In fact, Northerners believed that uh, that free labor could not complete, compete with slave labor because slave labor enabled a wealthy elite to monopolize land primarily, but also resources, so that free guys who didn't have a lot of money and didn't have much to start out with could never compete with them. So mm-hmm. the system of slavery would choke out free labor, which is what America was based on, they thought. Uh, as far as the Indians were concerned, the Northerners, as they came up against them, they wanted their land. They wanted their resources. And the Indians had their own actually quite successful economy that also needed those same resources. But the we tend to say whites, but in fact, of course, it's African-Americans and whites who are going into the plains after the Civil War. They look at the way the Indians use the land, and they simply say they're not using it. Mm-hmm. They're just riding over it. They're mm-hmm. just hunting on it. That's not the use of it. Well, of course, it is a use of it, but mm-hmm. they didn't see it that way. So their ideas for Indians were that they had two options. They could die, or they could assimilate into white society. 
And those were the two options, really, that Northerners thought of for Indians until uh, well into the 20th century. You either had to be one of us or you had to be dead. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly the approach that they took after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I find this very interesting because uh, although we look upon it in a very dark way right now, the, the American government ha- had had, uh, well, let's say at least a half a century, uh, 75 years of experience with uh, Indians, particularly in the eastern part of the nation. And uh, there they really didn't face this sort of problem because those Indians were, in fact, agriculturalists. So they could, um, if not quite easily, they could adapt in uh, a more felicitous way, let's put it that way, to the American lifestyle. But these Plain Indians, they, they lived a very different lifestyle. Well, they did, and they did because the Plains required a different lifestyle. One of the blinders that the that the federal government wears in the late 19th century is that they believe that the, the Plains are terrific for farming. They are not terrific for farming until we get modern uh, well systems, modern irrigation systems, which they don't have in the 19th century. There's a huge boom in irrigation at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. But it's not really until later on in the 20th century that that area becomes farmable. It seems to be farmable immediately after the Civil War because there's an increase in rainfall a, a sort of a blip in the in rainfall in the plains that makes a lot of people rush into the plains after the Civil War to try and farm. But it really can't be done successfully once weather patterns return back to normal. So the, the Sioux are in an especially hard place, not just them, but, but they're, of course, the folks of this book, are in an especially hard place because the government is telling them that they have to farm, that that's the only way to be a good American. And they have to stop hunting. They have to stop doing all of their traditional practices. They need to farm, but it's not possible to farm. You know, this is the same era that, that people rush onto the plains from the east, and then they turn around and rush back when they discover, in fact, that they can't farm successfully on the plains. The Sioux don't have anywhere to go. They're those, stuck those there. Are my, and those are my farming. people. <laughs> yeah. My people rushed from uh, Ohio to uh, Kansas, actually, where they were poor. <laughs> they never <That's> right. left. <laughs> well, but, but that also feeds into the way that the government thinks about it because they've got immigrants coming in huge numbers in the 19th century for whom land on the plains was the, was the holy grail. So to say to an Indian, here's the land, farm it, and have a Sioux go, forget it, I don't want any part of it, makes them look like they're not going to cooperate. And you also have African Americans who are simply desperate for land. So the very fact that you've got people clamoring for the very things that the, the tribes on the plains are saying, forget it, we don't want to live that way, makes them just look recalcitrant to the people back east who mm-hmm. are making the political decisions. Mm-hmm. One thing that we need to make sure we say here is that when we talk about this thing, the Plains Indians or the Sioux, we're actually talking about many different things. Many different things. And they have very, very different histories, different languages, of course, as well. But when I, when I talk during this podcast... It, it, I will probably go back um, yeah, sure. talking about the Sioux because I've just spent so much time with them. Mm-hmm. I actually, my last book had an awful lot on the Comanches, mm-hmm. um, but right now my mind's in the Sioux. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about, and they didn't really get along terribly well in many of them. I, I don't know. I remember from my various reading that the Sioux and the Crow were sort of at each other's throats all the Absolutely. time. And, you know, that they really despised one another. There was no, there was no, eventually they make a kind of peace, but it's a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's always important to say that uh, when we speak about Indians or Plains Indians, it's a little bit like saying, as we still do today, Chinese. <laughs> there are actually lots of different kinds of Chinese or Europeans. 
or Europeans. Europeans. There are lots of different kinds of Europeans, and uh, it's well, a similar the story them, here. The Sioux themselves are broken down into a number of different bands as well. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision when I wrote the book um, to use the word Sioux, which is really an epithet in a lot of ways. And I did that because uh, I figured the people who knew that they're really called the Lakota were the, not the people I needed to reach with this book, mm-hmm. and that if I started right in using all the different names of the bands, the people that I wanted to have read this book would pick it up and go, oh, I can't figure out how, who all these people are, and put mm-hmm. it down, and they would never read the book. So, in fact, I use the word Sue, and I do finally introduce the names of the different bands, mm-hmm. but I kind of sneak them in a little bit yeah. of, into the book. Yeah. Well, we have Sioux. You can actually look at American place names and see them. We have Sioux City. Uh, right here in Iowa. You can go visit mm-hmm. it even today. Uh, I don't think there are any Sioux there, although I could be wrong. Listeners, I'd like it, to hear from you. It made it very difficult to, to research this in the newspapers because in the searchable databases, you couldn't just put in Sioux because I got everything from Sioux City, which apparently yeah. is quite an active newspaper culture. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's probably, that's probably right. So then the uh, American, then the planes were to be this great engine of uh, economic growth. Uh, they were to, to support the northern project for the spread of free labor, um, but they ran up against these um, Indians who practiced the kind of pastoralism, I guess I would say. Is, is that an accurate characterization of their economy, pastoral? Uh, I don't actually. I don't know either. I mean, that's what I in, – in the Central Asian context, that's what I would call it. But I don't know if they actually uh, – I don't know actually herded anything. They, they did hunt a lot of buffalo. That much we do know. Right, I don't know the word pastoralization yeah, in, I, I in don't kind really of an American know. context. Pastoral. What they they do is they hunt, yeah, um, but right. they don't. It, it, they're not sort of you know dropped by God onto the land. In fact, generation after generation of Indian culture had changed the land so that mm-hmm. it was really good for um, not just buffalo, but for a lot of the animals that um, that were from that part of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 region that the Sioux end up fighting over most dramatically is the Powder River country, mm-hmm. which is just phenomenal hunting land. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you can see, you can actually, all, all of this is uh, under, cult- m- much of the Plain States are under cultivation today, but you can still see a lot of it, I know from my travels, in uh, South Dakota and some North Dakota. You can actually even see it in Kansas in the Flint Hills and in Nebraska, in the Sand Hills, I think they're called. These are areas that could not be cultivated and have never been cultivated. And there you have what is called Tall Grass Prairie, uh, which uh, supported zillions of buffalo, which is uh, what these um, Native Americans lived off of in their um, – I, I think it's, it's – I would call it pastoral uh, economy, although maybe one of my listeners will write me and tell me that I'm totally wrong about that. So in any event um, – how did things stand between the Indians uh, or the Sioux and the uh, American government um, in the region um, when Sherman arrived? Uh, well, I just want to clarify a little bit on the on the the bison. There, they did actually eat stuff from the ground as well. It's not that they're just running around after buffalo. Yeah. Um, there. Sure. You, you hit me there on the word pastoralization. Uh, how do things stand? Well, what happens is during the Civil War, for a number of reasons, there are um, – in the southwest, there are fights that break out between the Comanche and the U.S. government and the, the Texans, by the way, too. Texas is a fascinating story in 1865 and for the next couple of years. But what happens in the in the northern plains, which is what the focus of this particular book is on um, – is that war breaks out between the Cheyenne and the Sioux and the U.S. government toward the end of the Civil War, largely because of the Sand Creek Massacre. 
which I'll talk about in a second. But it sparked primarily uh, at the beginning by the what it, what the government calls the Santee Uprising in Minnesota in 1862, and that's a, a really interesting story that people most people haven't even heard of. Interesting because it's a case where the the Santee, which is one of the three big major bands of Sioux, uh, lived in Minnesota. They get pushed aside by settlers. They're forced onto a reservation that can't support them, and the government is supposed to be providing them with um, food and annuities because they've taken the, all their land. But because of the financial crisis of the Civil War, they, in fact, don't provide money in 1862, and the Santee are literally starving. So they, the young men of the tribe start to push back against the settlers, and they kill a number of the settlers in what, again, is called an uprising. It's um, by the government. Uh, it seems a, a fairly reasonable reaction to the fact that their agent actually has food to give them but refuses to because they killed, the they killed quite a lot of the settlers didn't they it was between in the hundreds wasn't it? yeah uh, between 200 and 400 um so what happens after that and the reason that i sort of am shocked that it isn't more widely known is there's a mass execution of these guys it's still the last uh, the largest mass execution in american history that's in 1862 lincoln pardons as many as he possibly can but they end up still hanging a number of them they run west to try and enlist the other bands of sioux into defending their territory and into defending themselves against the u.s government then the the Yankton Sioux, who are the next group over, aren't terribly interested. The Teton Sioux are willing to fight, but they're so far out west, they don't really have a lot of contact with uh, with any Americans except an occasional trader, so they're not entirely sure that they want to participate. But then they get news of the Sand Creek Massacre, and that's that massacre in Colorado mm-hmm. where the uh, a number of uh, Indians are, uh, well, massacred by um, – by volunteers, temporary volunteers for the U.S. Army. And they run up to the Santee, I'm sorry, up to the, the Teton Sioux to say, you know, we're under attack. And when that happens, the Sioux get involved and really launch at that point their own war against the U.S. government. And that war rages pretty much from 1865, 1866 through to 1868 when even Red Cloud, who is the leader of that war, becomes known as Red Cloud's War, even he ends up signing the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, which theoretically should uh, should have ended the, the struggles between the Sioux and the and the army. It didn't. The idea of between the um, of Sherman and the people who were with him in uh, in an attempt to stop the Indian Wars was that the southwestern Indians should be pushed onto a reservation and the northwestern Indians should all be pushed onto a reservation. And that would open up a corridor through the middle of the country that the railroads could run through and that settlers could then take out to the west coast and onto the plains. So the idea was really to push the Indians out of the way and to stop the wars that were picking off settlers as they were trying to start their homesteads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this general strategy of um – trying to protect the settlers and the railroads, we should say, because the railroads were going through at the time. Uh, it involved building forts in strategic locations and positioning army units and also making agreements with the Indians. Now, uh, there were a lot of these agreements, and they don't seem to have been honored. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the forts, they do put forts, and the forts that are most important to the Sioux are actually not in the middle of the country. They're through that Powder River country that I mentioned before. And that's because during the Civil War in 1864, a guy named John Bozeman decides he's going to cut a trail up from the old 
um, Overland Trail that went out west, he's going to cut up from that to the new gold mines in Montana. And when he cuts the Bozeman Trail, he cuts it directly through the Powder River country. That mm-hmm. becomes a very popular trail because miners, of course, want to get to the gold fields, and also because the U.S. government so desperately needs money for the, to fight the war, uh, gold for the Treasury to fight the war. So the, the U.S. Army begins to put forth along the Bozeman Trail, and it's, it's that that really infuriates the Sioux because that, was, that goes right through their Powder River country, and it brings not only the miners, but it also brings settlers. And, of course, they, they start hunting game, and they're very much in the way, and it is, after all, Sioux land. Um, so that's where the forts are that really cause uh, cause a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, so these settlers start to show up. I mean, they're settlers and gold miners and such. And uh, how do the Indians deal with them at first? Do they they go to the government and say, "Well, you know, what is the deal with this? I, we, didn't we have an agreement about this?" Well, they don't really have an agreement at that point. You asked about the the later agreement. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, the yeah, I think at first they they tolerate the traders because there aren't that many of them. When I say that word at this in this era, I always am worried people will think I'm saying traitors, but I mean traders, mm-hmm. people who trade things. At first, they're they're they fine for there to be a few people. It's when they start to come in huge numbers, um, numbers enough to frighten the game and to be a problem in the land, and um, that's when the the. In the 1860s, when the the Teton Sioux, primarily the Oglalas under Red Cloud, start to say, hey, this is our land. You're not supposed to be here. We protect it. Get out. And at that point, they don't have um, much of an agreement with the the U.S. government. There is a kind of an agreement that goes into place. The one that really matters doesn't come until 1868 um, because the, the earlier one is completely ignored. But you're dead right about the the railroads, because it is, and this I think is a really interesting and obviously problematic construction. John uh, William comes to Sherman's brother, John Sherman, mm-hmm. is a senator, as we know, in Congress, and there is some debate about what the government's obligations are to the settlers and to the railroads. And William Tecumseh Sherman strongly makes the argument that because the government has allowed the railroads to build. He, that has chartered the railroad, that has given private companies the right to build the transcontinental railroads. He claims that by doing that, there is an implied promise to use the government to then protect that company, which is a huge leap mm-hmm. if you think about it. That's not at all what they were thinking in Congress when they chartered the transcontinental railroads. They, this is completely new, and he insists that having done that, they now have an obligation to go ahead and protect the railroads. And this Congress adopts. They decide that, in fact, this is the case. They must protect the railroads. They must protect the settlers. And they do, in fact, get behind the army going out and pushing the Indians onto the reservations, although they really don't want a full-scale war. It's too expensive. They can't afford it. Mm-hmm. What they do is they manage to construct two very important treaties, the Treaty of Medicine Lodge in the southwest in 1867 and the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 in the northwest. No, they are not honored. The, the Treaty of Medicine Lodge is its, its own problem that we could talk about if you, if you wanted to know, but for the purposes of Wounded Knee, the Treaty of Fort Laramie uh, of 1868 theoretically guarantees the Sioux a great deal of land, not all of it, but a great deal of land, including the Black Hills, until three-quarters of the tribe agrees to sign it away. Mm-hmm. In reality, uh, settlers and, and especially miners start to come in immediately. Then the Northern Pacific Railroad starts to lay tra- not to, to starts to survey across Sioux land, and at that point, 
even Red Cloud goes to Washington and he says, hey, get out of here. This is our land. The, the government sort of half-heartedly tries to keep people out until um, 1874, 1875, when, um, when men have, Custer and his men have, have definitively pr- argued, uh, proven with their expedition out to the Black Hills in 18... In around about then, um, that there is gold in the Black Hills, mm-hmm. and when that happens, so many miners start to pour in. The the government says to the Sioux, says, "Hey, let us buy this land," and the Sioux say, "No way, you you can't have it. It's ours. It's ours by treaty. It's our ancestral land. You cannot have it." And so the the government just throws up its hand, and the army throws up its hands and says, "Okay, we're not going to try to keep people out anymore." And it tells anybody who goes into the land to be prepared for, quote, hostile, unquote, Indians. Mm -hmm. So basically they're saying we're not going to live up to our end of the bargain. We simply can't stop this tide of people going in. If the Indians look out now, good luck. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. No, I – this this, this, – actually, it sort of reminds me of the appendix to um, War and Peace. That may seem like an odd thing to be citing at this point, but one of the things Tolstoy says in that is that uh, generals think they have command of things, but actually they don't. The things are just happening out there, and it's pretty much out of the control of, of whoever claims to be um, claims to be uh, in command. And, and in this instance, I you know they, they may they may have been right because they couldn't really control these settlers, could they? Well, they could have made more of an effort then. The play, what you're reminding me of though is later on um, in 1880, uh, early 1890, when President Harrison opens up the Sioux Reservation for settlement. Before he does that, there's actually a wonderful set of commentary from a bunch of soldiers who are supposed to be keeping settlers out, and they're exhausted. They're, you know, you can just see these poor guys. They're getting out of bed every morning, trying desperately to keep settlers out, and they're begging. It's like, please send us more soldiers. We are so tired of trying to keep these guys out. And you got to feel for them. It's like they're giving an they're given an impossible task. You know, on the one side, the settlers are, you know, pestering them all day to let them in, and and probably swinging fists occasionally and all that. And on the other side, they're supposed to be doing their job, and they're just they're just weary. And you can hear it in their in their commentary on the whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, migration is a very powerful force. Uh, ask the Brazilians about it. The, uh, well, and so was gold in yeah, the 1870s. Yeah, so gold. Yeah, no, that's true. So uh, things don't really go terribly well in several instances for the uh, government and its army. And I'm thinking here of the uh, the Fetterman massacre, and or I guess battle, and then later Little Bighorn. Um, could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, there's a series of uh, what the the – Easterners always dub massacres. Anytime the Indians win, it's a massacre. <laughs> Anytime they lose, it's a battle, um, regardless of – in Eastern parlance, regardless of the reality of the engagement. Um, the, the Fetterman massacre, the wagon box fight, the things that come after that, things that people may have heard of but have no clue really what they are, they tend to be battles uh, that are fought generally against Red Cloud during that, that Red Cloud War to try and hold the forts along the Bozeman Trail. In fact, uh, in 1868, the Army abandons those forts. They pull out of them, and Red Cloud burns them. Um, they start to build them again. The Army starts to build them again fairly quickly, but the, all those things that sort of fall into Western history and those names you've heard of but don't know what they are, those tend to be what they are. Mm-hmm. The Battle of the Little Bighorn is a very different kettle of fish. And what happens there is after... 1874, 1875, when so many people are pouring into their land, um, the 
the Sioux and a, and a bunch of other tribes as well, including the Northern Cheyenne and a couple of others, all come together and decide that once and for all they're going to push the whites, although, of course, they're African Americans as well, they're going to push these people out of their lands. And they organize under Sitting Bull in, uh, in the summer of 1876. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the Army has decided that once and for all it's going to get rid of all the Sioux that doesn't want the, the settlers and the miners to come into the region. That they, they are now considered hostile. They manage that by a, a, an order that it really the, the Indians can't comply with, and if they don't comply with it, they're considered hostile. So the Army at that point decides to send in a three-pronged attack and find what they, what they know is a large camp, but they don't know how large it is. They actually underestimate it for a couple of reasons. Um, it, it, that culminates in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, where, in fact, um, Custer, for a number of reasons, has been sent in a different place than the rest of the, the army has been. And Custer drops, it divides his own force into three pieces and drops in on this very, very large encampment of Sioux on the, on the Little Bighorn very hot day in the summer of 1876, and in fact, in the space of about an hour, Custer's entire command is wiped out with the exception of some of his Native American scouts who managed to realize he's walking into a trap, not walking into a trap, but he's being ridiculous in his in his battle plan, and they hide in the bushes. And we have actually firsthand accounts of that because of them hiding in the bushes and being able to tell what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but that happens in the summer of 1876, and when it goes, when the, the news goes back east, remembering, of course, that this is the U.S. Army attacking the Sioux in their own land, mm-hmm. uh, and it was an encampment that was not at the time prepared for war. They knew they were going to have to fight a battle, and they had fought a battle previously as well. But that day, they were simply, it was a very hot day, they were simply, you know, watering the horses, swimming, the women were digging for food uh, when the Army fell on them. But uh, Custer was unfortunately fell onto the the most warlike end of the camp, about a, about a three-mile camp, and those people got their women and children to safety and then circled back around and, mm-hmm. and wiped out first Custer's group. And then um, the other two groups uh, managed to run up a ravine, I'm sorry, run up a hill, and many of them escaped. Mm-hmm. But uh, when that word goes back east, Easterners see it as an attack on a noble American hero by hostile and and savage Indians. And when when the Battle of the Little Bighorn happens and Custer and his men are wiped out, not all of them, as I say, some of them escape, um, not the ones immediately under Custer, but some of the people under two other commanders escape. When that happens, the U.S. Army emphatically gets behind breaking the Sioux once and for all. And from 1876 through that winter of 1876-1877, they march through the Powder River country, through the Black Hills, uh, eventually chasing Sitting Bull up to Canada and corralling most of the rest of the Sioux who had been with Sitting Bull back onto reservations. And it's during the surrender of the Sioux in different bands uh, in the spring of 1877, that Crazy Horse is stabbed and killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of Sitting Bull's right-hand men. So right-hand men. So he is killed. Most of the Sioux end up being forced onto reservations in 1878. 
and Sitting Bull and his people have run, to, a few of his people have run to Canada. Mm-hmm. And they're up in Canada from uh, from about then to, to 1881 when they finally are starving in Canada and they come back to America. And that's really the end of the, the Sioux as a major fighting force that can hold off the U.S. Army is mm-hmm. right then at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. Mm-hmm. I wanted to plug a book, actually, other than yours. We're really here to plug your book. But there is a book that's it's actually one of my favorite uh, popular history books. It's called Son of the Morning Star by Evan Cannell. Do you know this book at all? I do, yeah. It's a really a great book. I just, I've read it a couple of times and it's a, as popular history goes, he's not a historian, he's a novelist, but it's a very, very uh, nice uh, uh, depiction, if a depiction of Little Bighorn can be nice, of uh, of Custer. We, we should talk a little bit about, since you mentioned uh, how this story was received back east, the role of the press in all of this. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I don't know a lot about the role of the press in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. No, not the Battle of the Bighorn, I, just in general. How, how are the Indians and the Indian affairs uh, depicted uh, back east? Well, at first, the, we're talking in this conversation about a very large span of history, mm-hmm. really. Uh, you know, if you, if you take our starting point as 1865, and really since I started in 1862 with the Santee uprising, a word I really hate for that, um, but if we really take it from 1862 or even 1860 when the Republicans came up with their economic program um, through to the Wounded Knee Massacre or 1890, which is where I end this book, that's 40 years of history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's like saying, you know, tell me about the American press from, you know, the 1960s to the, you know, the 2000 aughts. It changes a lot. Mm-hmm. But one thing to remember in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, is that Newspapers are fiercely partisan, especially during the Civil War and immediately after the Civil War. By the mid-1870s, you have the rise of an independent press as well. So a lot of newspapers that had been either Republican or Democratic become independent. That really matters by the time you get to the 1890s because – the, the larger American picture by the 1890s and trying to pull together both the Indian story and the national story is that the Republican Party changes a lot from the 1860s to the 18, late 1880s. And what has begun as an economic program that's designed to expand the middle class as much as it possibly can has changed by the 1880s to be the unabashed, aggressive promotion of big business at all costs. So by the 1890s, you have newspapers that are staunchly pro-Republican, pro-big business, pro a high tariff, which protects big business, um, and pro-Republican voters. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have the Democrats who want to protect workers who are getting um, a a worse and worse deal in the industry of the – the time, the steel mills and the large factories, the, the the people who no longer can make a living wage and who are being maimed by workplace accidents, they want to protect farmers who don't end up being doing very well under the Republican program, although, of course, the Republicans started by protecting farmers. They want to help those people by, among other things, regulating business so that they have to pay a decent, wa- decent wage and they have to clean up their factories and they have to stop the really incredible pollution that they are putting out at the time. They also want to lower the tariff, which would make goods a lot cheaper for the working man. That the Republicans object to vehemently because they insist that the high tariff 
that promotes business is the only thing that makes America great. Mm -hmm. Whereas Democrats, on the other hand, say you're destroying the people who are working in the factories. They're making less and less money. They have to have cheaper goods. So by the 1890s, you have this dramatic split. Now, you also have in the middle, though, a number of papers that are independent, and they really do vaguely side with one side or the other, but they try and give a more balanced view of the world. So it's a very useful time to look at newspapers. Mm. By the 1890s, what happens in the newspapers with regard to Indians is it really depends on which administration is in power, because whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, because the people in charge of Indians are politicians in the, 19, in the 1880s, 1890s. They are appointed by the president or by senators of the majority party, and they do what they are told by those politicians. So the Indian agencies and the management of Indians by the 18, late 1880s, 1890s is really – especially for the Republicans, a way to get a lot of money because the Indians, the Congress gives Indians money to, to provide their annuities every year and to provide for them. But that money is then dispersed by Indian agents, and it tends to be dispersed in ways that will create more voters for the party. Mm-hmm. So if you are a Republican administration putting your own guys into the Indian agencies, the Democrats take the side away from you. If you are a Democrat in the Indian agencies, the Republican papers insist you're messing everything up. Mm -hmm. And it really becomes very politicized by the 1880s and the 1890s. Mm -hmm. I see. So was uh, there any difference in the uh, general policy, if there was a consistent general policy between the way Republicans and Democrats viewed Indian affairs? There certainly was by by the late 1880s, 1890s, and that is that a number of reformers – and again, that's a huge question because Grant's very involved in it. He's the first one to develop a a different kind of Indian policy, and a number of different religious groups are involved and on and on, and that's a whole dissertation in and of itself. But um, by the 1880s, there, there is a dramatic move in American society to clean up politics, to try and make it dependent on people to try to create a bureaucracy that is not tied to a political party with the idea that this is going to increase the level of proficiency of the people in civil service jobs, but it's also going to make it so that people do what's best for the country and really do their jobs as opposed to simply trying to get people elected. In the 1880s, we passed a civil service law, but the the people who really jump on board the civil service with regard to um, to the Indians, at least by the end of the 1880s, uh, it actually starts in the Republican Party, but it's really the Democrats. It's really Grover Cleveland and his administration beginning in 1884 that says, you know what, we've got to clean up what's going on out there at the Indian agencies. We're not going to let senators who live out there appoint Indian agents anymore or recommend Indian agents. We're going to do it from Washington so that we're not corrupted by what's actually going on on the ground, and we're really going to try to reform what's happening on the northwestern Indian reservations, and we're going to try and make sure that we give the Indians a fair shake. 
when Harrison comes into into office in 1888, he wants no part of it. Harrison's <laughs> administration is one of the most corrupt in American history. He has every intention of using the Indians and the Indian agencies to try and increase the amount of votes he can get out in the West. So there's a big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans from about 1884 onwards. Mm -hmm. So this difference, though, is about how to manage the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, if that's what it was called at the time. I don't really know. Um, it, it did not have to do with the final disposition of the Indians in relatively confined reservations. Everybody agreed that was going to happen. Everybody agreed that was going to happen. The question was, how are you? How were you going to make make it possible for Indian populations to join the larger American population? That was really the goal of everybody. The question is whether people were simply paying lip service to it or whether they were really trying to do it. And by the way, no, it was not the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was yeah. the Office of Indian Affairs okay. at the time. Okay, the Office of Indian Affairs. Thank you for the correction. So the the um one thing that I learned from your book that I, did, I didn't know, uh, of course, the things I don't know are legion, was that the, um, the government attempted to instruct the Indians or pay white farmers and African-American farmers, I suppose, to teach the Indians how to um, farm. Uh, has, has much been written about this? Maybe you could tell the story of it. I, I didn't know this at all. I knew that they had sent them to school and things like this, but I had no idea that there was an actual active attempt to sedentize, so to say, the Indians. This is a really interesting uh, interesting aspect of the history of it. Yes, there was, but again, this was a political patronage job. Some people were good at it, some people weren't. Some people actually tried to help, other people didn't. And um, the the stories that, that come out of the reservations, the Sioux reservations, which are the only ones I know from this era, are are. I mean, heart-wrenching, but they're also fascinating because, of course, the farmers, they were, they were called the farmers on the reservation because they were supposed to be teaching farming. The farmers had a real interest in proving that they were doing a good job. And so they would, not just them, but um, them and the, the people who were friendly with the agents, whenever an inspector came around or whenever any, a newspaper reporter came around, they would fill up wagons to try and make it look like the Indians were growing a ton of stuff. <laughs> so words so in fact in the Republican papers in the eighteen in eighteen eighty nine, for example, they insist that the Sioux are the best producers anywhere in the country, that they're wealthy, that they have all these great thriving farms, all this kind of stuff. Well, if you know anything about the drought conditions on the prairie, this is just absolute fantasy. This is simply not happening, but they're, they're sort of dragging these pretend wagons out in front of people. And it becomes very ironic because when, when Congress is arguing about what happens at Wounded Knee, or what is about to happen at Wounded Knee, or what's happening in 1890, um, the, the civilians the people who are taking their, their information from the Indian agents say, oh, you know, there's tons of food out there. They've got, you know, they're all farming. Anybody who wants to is farming and all that. But the army, the people who are actually on the ground and who aren't falling for this one wagon, loaded wagon being taken around, keep going, we've seen the fields. There's nothing in them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it becomes this big you know, facade. We see what we want to see. And, and yet the, during that same period, the people who are listening to the Indian agents keep saying, no, 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 we, we, we've seen the, the wagons. You know, the, the wagons are full of food. And the army is going, there are no wagons. And yet the, the people listening to the Indian agents insist that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. I see. So let's move on then um, to the Wounded D Massacre itself. 
Um, what was the uh, kind of prelude to that? And I'm speaking particularly of uh, um, the uh, role of the Congress here in breaking up the Sioux Reservation. The, the, the road to the Wounded Knee Massacre is actually fairly complicated because there is so much going on. You know, nothing's ever easy, right? But as I say, the whole Republican platform from the time of the Civil War was the idea that economic development was at the heart of America. Now, by the 1880s, it was not serving Americans any longer. It was only serving big business. What happens is in the election of 1888, big business is terrified of the reelection of Grover Cleveland, who's been president from 1884. He is, in fact, defeated for the presidency in 1888 by Benjamin Harrison, who loses the popular vote uh, by about 100,000 votes. So they manage, it's a very corrupt campaign, but they manage to elect Benjamin Harrison, or at least to put him in the White House, although he's short the votes, he gets into the White House through the Electoral College. What this means is from the minute the Republicans have taken office in 1888, they recognize that they have got to strengthen their position or they're going to lose the White House and probably the Congress in 1892, and that they are going to take a hit in the 1890 election. So the, as soon as they get in office, they start madly scrambling to try and strengthen the Republicans across the country. They don't hide this. You know, I mentioned this to someone once, and he said, oh, you know, you just see conspiracies anywhere. In fact, they don't hide it at all. They actually buy Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, which is one of the major newspapers of the time, and and put Harrison's son in charge of it to be the mouthpiece of the organ of the, the administration. And they say repeatedly what they're doing. They're very proud of what they're doing. They put it in Frank Leslie's because they really believe that if pro-business legislation is challenged, that the socialists will take over, they call the Democrat socialists, and they will destroy America. So they believe that by act, they are acting in the best interest in the country, even if they are not supported by the majority of the American people. They're the only ones who get what's right for America. So one of the first things they do is they decide that they need to strengthen their position in the Senate. So that even if they lose the House, which they're pretty sure they're going to do, they're going to be able to keep the hold of the Senate. So one of the first things they do in 1889, and it's astonishing to me more people don't know about this, is they let four new states into the Union. South Dakota, North Dakota, they split the territory of Dakota in half. Now, there really aren't very many people there, but they split Dakota in half, and they make it North and South Dakota. They let it in. They let in Montana, and they let in Washington, expecting that all of these states will be Republican states. In fact, Montana's not a Republican state, but they claim that there's been corruption in the election, so they replace the, the senators in Montana with Republicans. So all four of those states send Republican senators to Washington. What that does is it strengthens Republicans dramatically in the Senate, but it also changes the calculation in the Electoral College. They're really very consciously looking at the Electoral College with the idea that Harrison got in that way, another Republican can as well, too, as long as they manage to keep enough Republican states coming. Now, you can see the problem here. The problem is that South Dakota, the most of the land in what is now South Dakota, because they just split the Dakota Territory in half, belongs to the Sioux. Mm -hmm. So in 1889, the Republicans very aggressively go out and get the Sioux to give up more than half of their land and settle instead on six reservations that are spread out across what is now South Dakota and a little bit of North Dakota. Uh, one of the reservations laps over. They do this by bribery, by corruption, by promises, by any number of things. But one of the things they really managed to do is the guy in charge of this who had fought the Sioux in 1876 is a guy named Crook, 
uh, General Crook, and he made a lot of promises to the Sioux that if they gave up their land, they would finally get the food they'd been promised. They would get paid for ponies that had been taken away from them. They would get schools they had been promised that had never been delivered. They would get a lot of stuff that had always been promised but had never been forthcoming. He makes these promises. He gets the signatures that he needs, or at least claims to get three-quarters of the signatures of the Sioux that they need because of the Treaty of Fort Laramie to give up that land. That's 1889. He takes the agreement back east um, to, to get the promises fulfilled. That never happens. Instead, um, Harrison goes ahead and opens that land, the Sioux land, without fulfilling any of the promises. Mm -hmm. So the Sioux are now divided onto these six reservations, which are not big enough for them to, feed, to live on. They're, they're not, there's not enough food on them, and they don't get anything that they're supposed to be getting from the government because Harrison went ahead and opened up the land without fulfilling any of the promises that Crook had made. Crook, by the way, dies. He's furious. He's trying to fix all this, and then he has a heart attack and dies, so he's out of the picture. <laughs> Harrison doesn't fill any of the promises. The settlers start coming in. There is no way for the Indians to live on the, the reservations they've got. And actually, the settlers aren't coming as fast as they had hoped, so they're not getting any money for the land. And they turn at that point to a new religion called the Ghost Dance, which promises to bring back the land before the settlers came with the game on it so they can all live again. They all will have food. And the people who've been dying in great numbers because of the, the starvation and because of a, a case of influenza that swept across America – in 1889-1890, uh, has killed a lot of people. They will all come back to life, and everybody will be happy again the way they were before settlers come. So you have the, the starvation, you have the rise of the ghost dance, and you've got the desperation of the Harrison administration to hold on to South Dakota as a Republican state, all coming to a head in the summer of 1890. Mm -hmm. And so the... Uh the government asked the Sioux, or the Sioux themselves, um, begin to, I think the expression is, come in. Is that right? Come into the reservation, yeah. yeah. Actually, actually, it's come into the agency. Yeah, come into the agency is what yeah. I was thinking about. And this is actually, uh, it's on the way to the agency that the massacre occurs, correct? Right. Yeah. So what happens is that... Um, Harrison knows he's losing the, the West because this is the, the piece, and actually the piece that really triggered my interest in the book. Those of us who know the larger American story know that the summer of 1890 is also known as the Alliance Summer because it's a summer that uh, a lot of Westerners break away from the old parties and start their own political organization called the Alliances. Later on, that becomes the populist, sort of mm -hmm. morphs into the populist. Yeah. But in the summer of 1890, they're peeling away from the Republican Party, and Harrison is starting to hear from his people back in the West that he's going to lose the Western states unless he does something, that, they're going to, that voters are going to peel off to the Alliances and they're going to throw Democrats into power unless he does something and unless he does something very quickly. So what he does is in 1890, he replaces a number of the agents on those South Dakota reservations with political operatives with the idea that they will distribute contracts, you know, the contracts for food and clothing and housing on the, on the reservations, to political supporters who will then make sure that South Dakota does not swing into the Democratic or the Alliance column. Uh, in fact, that doesn't work in the end, but that was the idea. Unfortunately, the agents don't know anything about Indians, and within a week of one of them arriving on 
his reservation, Pine Ridge, he insists that the ghost dance is an effort to massacre all the surrounding settlers, and he believes he's top on the list, and he's uh, a nervous wreck. It's also possible he's already a drug addict. He's one shortly after this. And he insists that the troops have to come in to protect him and to protect settlers. In fact, there is no sign that there is any kind of an uprising on the reservations at all, on Pine Ridge at all. There are no letters from settlers who are worried. There are no editorials in newspapers. The governor is not upset about anything. Uh, it's just this guy and later on another a guy on another reservation as well. The the people back east who are trying to handle this agent keep saying, we're not going to call in the Army. We've worked very hard to keep civilian control over the Indians, and we sure don't want to give up all this patronage money and all the patronage jobs we've got. He keeps insisting. And finally, um, the President Harrison asks the Army, says, you know, is there a problem out there or not? And the Army led by General Miles at that point, the Army officers in South Dakota look around and they say, no, mm -hmm. there's not an uprising here. These people are starving to death. Please give them food and fulfill the promises that Crook made to them, and everything will be fine. Well, this struggle goes back and forth between the Army and the, the politicians in the Interior Department, which is what runs the Indian agencies. goes back and forth until finally um, Harrison is completely fed up, and he... Uh, in a very sh sneaky way, um, basically undercuts General Miles. He's afraid General Miles is going to run for president, which is a, a very realistic expectation in 1890. He wants to make sure he's out of the picture, and he throws on General Miles that it's up to him. If he thinks there is not going to be an uprising, he doesn't have to take the army in. But if he thinks there is, he ought to be. Well, Miles is taking the army in. Miles does not think there's an uprising, but he also recognizes that if there is and he has decided not to go in, mm -hmm. he will never be president. Yeah. He also recognizes that if he does take the army in and something happens, he will never be president. It's a lose-lose for him and a win-win for Harrison, but he does end up taking the army in. When, once they're out there, uh, he insists to the, his commanders in the field that they must not get mixed up with the Indians. They do not want a war. He wants them in and out as fast as he possibly can. Harrison and his men, on the other hand, say, no, 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 you guys can stay till spring. You know, bring a lot of money into South Dakota. There's no rush for you to get out. Mm -hmm. um, Miles, meanwhile, says we want to be in, we want to be out. So as the troops run into South Dakota, a lot of Indians who had been ghost dancers and were nervous about the, uh, the arrival of the Army run into the Badlands. In the effort to bring them back in, the, the Army negotiates to bring them into the in from the Badlands for a long time. Um, Miles gets more and more frustrated because he wants to get out of South Dakota and, um, and show that he can handle the Indians far better than people in the Interior Department can and the agents can. He starts to round up ghost dance leaders. Unfortunately, the first one he brings in comes in without a problem. It's an old friend of an Army officer, and, and he goes in and actually starts scouting for the Army. The second one he tries to bring in is Sitting Bull, and in the process of trying to arrest Sitting Bull, Sitting Bull is murdered. Mm -hmm. When that happens, Sitting Bull's people run, uh, try and run to take shelter with Red Cloud, who uh, lives in the southern part of the state. When they do that, um, they sweep in another group of Minicon Jews who had been ghost dancers and who were actually on quite good terms with the army officer who lived near them. But they all get frightened and they start to run down the state. And it's those people, uh, because they run, 
they are the the army says they must be hostile they must be going to join the people in the badlands and we must capture them and it's that band of about 300 indians running down the state that is finally captured not in the badlands but actually on one of the reservations they're they're on a reservation by then they're trying to get to the reservation agency and take shelter with red cloud they're the ones who are captured by the army on the night of december 28th Mm -hmm. and they come in peacefully don't they totally totally their leader their leader has pneumonia. Mm-hmm. He is very, very ill. And they were, as I say, the, the army surrounds him and says, we're going to take you to the agency. And his reaction is, thank God, yeah. I can ride in an ambulance. That's where I'm going, too. Right. And they actually put him in an ambulance, don't they? They do. Yeah, they, they do. put him in an ambulance. And so things are amicable for a little while. Uh, but then, uh, for whatever reason, things go bad. How, how does that happen? What happens is that they're the when uh, the leader of that group is called Bigfoot, when he had run south with his people because they were frightened, he had been supposed to go um, to uh, to take Sitting Bull's men um, to surrender them to the army the day before. When he had not done that, um, he, when he in fact had run away from that man, the army got the idea that they must be sure to guard him. They had convinced themselves at this point that that Bigfoot was dangerous, that and his the hunk papas that he had with him were dangerous. So when he surrenders peacefully, they bring a lot more soldiers out from the agency to surround Bigfoot. When they do that, surround Bigfoot and his people, when they do that, the ranking officer outranks the man who had been in charge of of that particular part of the campaign. The The guy who brought them in peacefully. That's right. Yeah. Unfortunately, this guy named James Forsyth was not, had mostly been um, a desk uh, officer since the Civil War. He'd actually been, he was at the head of the 7th Cavalry, Custer's old 7th Cavalry, which had been rebuilt. He'd been with them about four years, but they'd had nothing to do where they were stationed, and he really had not run any military maneuvers at all. So when he, they bring in all all these people, um, they set up a number of guns uh, above looking down on the Indians. They are thoroughly surrounded. And the next morning, Forsyth tries to disarm the Indians. When he does that, he gets angrier and angrier because they don't want to be disarmed. And they don't want to be disarmed not because they're planning to shoot everybody down, but because, first of all, guns are very expensive. So it's rather like having somebody come up to you and saying, you know, you know, hey, please hand over your BMW. Um, and, yeah, you'll get it back. Well, they know perfectly well they're never going to get it back because, among other things, the people who are taking the guns are marking them to give to their friends. Um, he tries to disarm them. The Indians don't want to give up the guns, partly because they're expensive, partly because it's the only way they're going to get any food, because remember, they're not getting any food. So if they don't have their guns, they're not going to eat. They don't want to give up the guns. Forsyth gets angrier and angrier and finally decides that he's going to disarm them one at a time. Now, unfortunately, because he was trying to overawe the Indians, he arranged his men, and I can't believe I have to say this, he arranged his men in a circle around the Indians. So that if they're struggling with one deaf man for his gun and he's holding it over his head saying, you got to pay me for it, you got to pay me for it. That's a paraphrase, by the way. He says a number of other things, too. Um, Three soldiers jump him from behind. And as they struggle for that gun, in a phrase that has been, I think, misinterpreted in the past, past, one of the mixed blood interpreters says, look out, look out, they are going to shoot. Well, in fact... The soldiers all have their guns pointing at this struggle going on, and I interpret that as him saying to the Indians, they, they, the soldiers with their guns pointed, are going to shoot. 
as that they struggle over that gun, the gun fires. It fires into the sky. But when that happens, Forsyth, this guy who's never who hasn't been off a desk and is is very very angry at this point, screams fire, fire on them. The troops do. They mow down not only uh, a number of the Indians there in the council circle, but also a number of their own troops. Mm -hmm. um, the Indians then uh, counterattack with knives that they have, and they snatch guns from soldiers and start to fight. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose, mm -hmm. and that's the start of the massacre. It goes on for a couple more hours uh, as the soldiers first kill everybody they can find in the council area. Then they turn the artillery on women and children who were trying to escape in wagons. They'd been hitching wagons as this went on. And finally, the, the men have run behind the tents into a ravine that, that was behind the, the sort of council area. They actually maneuver the artillery so it looks down the ravine. They kill everybody they can find in the ravine. And then finally, when they, they have gotten everybody that they can find that way, uh, the cavalry rides off over the plains and hunts people as far away as three miles from the battle scene. It takes mm -hmm. a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. uh, is everyone killed? No. Uh, most people are, and many of the survivors die of their wounds because they're infected. Um, they're, they're very badly hurt by the artillery shells. A few make it out. Uh, the, there are a number of different calculations. It's very interesting. Somebody quoted me recently as saying 300 people were killed, which surprised me. So I went back and looked in the book, and in fact, I say that 270 were killed. Mm -hmm. 300 is the name is about the number that were counted the night before in the captured group. Uh, and I did a bunch of calculations and figured we can't really know exactly how many were killed because we have two counts of the number of people who were thrown into a grave. We have other accounts that show that bodies were taken off the field the night before uh, the night before the, the, the searchers came mm -hmm. back to the field. And we also know that a number of survivors did, in fact, uh, finally meet up with the guys from the Badlands who were coming into the agency at that point. So I'm figuring probably about 20 Indians, 30, maybe 30 Indians lived, um, at least in the short term. As I say, a number died, died from their wounds over the next um over the next couple of days. Mm -hmm. How is the news received in Washington? Well, the Harris administration was quite happy to hear it. Uh, the version that they got was that the the because of the there was only one telegraph line that came out of the area around Wounded Knee, around Pine Ridge Reservation, it was down in Nebraska. The first telegraph report said that the brave Seventh Cavalry had defended this hideous attack by savages. Mm -hmm. And that went to the War Department, which promptly said, this is great, you know, congratulate the 7th Cavalry. Well, Miles went out, he was already nervous, and Miles went, he had not actually been in South Dakota. He went to South Dakota a day or so after the massacre, and he was horrified. And he wrote back and said, don't congratulate anybody yet, there's going to be an inquiry because of the fact that women and children were killed in huge numbers, and because so many of the soldiers were killed, it's clear that, they're, that the, the officer really screwed up. Mm -hmm. So at first there there is this sort of uh, nobody quite knows what to make of it. Um, the his superiors write to Miles and say, "Oh, we'll, we'll inquire into what's happening." He takes them quite seriously and he launches a, a court of inquiry into the behavior of Forsyth at the massacre. When that happens, the Republican administration distances itself from Miles. They want no part of an investigation. They want no part of anything that says that they did not behave exactly as they should have. Uh, and there's a reason for this. And the reason for that is that in the election of 1890, 
Harrison administration had, in fact, lost very badly. They had lost the House two to one, and they had held the Senate by only four votes. Three of those votes, though, were from Westerners who had started voting against the administration. So the only way they could hold on to control of Congress was to hold on to one senator, and that one senator was from South Dakota. He was up for re-election. His election was contested, and in the 19th century, elections, of course, are decided not by popular vote but by the legislature. The legislature is going to meet in January of 1891. The massacre happens on December 18. Uh, sorry, December 29, 1890. They do not want any inclination, any inkling coming out of South Dakota that the Republicans have done anything wrong in South Dakota because they desperately need that last senator, Gideon Moody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't want any part of Miles' accusations. And the committee of inquiry lines itself up behind Forsyth. Uh, And the administration, as the report goes up the line, whitewashes it more and more and more until at the end of the day, Forsyth is completely exonerated. He's put back in charge of the 7th. And Nelson Miles' career is the one that suffers, not Mm, Forsyth. Forsyth, Um, And in fact, the administration then gets behind the idea of these great heroes and awards a number of medals of honor. They're not Mm. congressional medals of honor in this era. They're medals of honor. Um, a number of medals of honor to the people who had been at Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. Is this the end of the Indian Wars? As far as the Sioux are concerned, it's the end of the shooting. I'm not entirely sure it's the end of the war in the sense that there is still a very important court, Supreme Court case, Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock, which is really sort of the nail in the coffin of Indian uh, land claims in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And there is also the fact that the Indians sort of, for a while, after what happens he, uh, at Wounded Knee, for a while they are put under the oversight of the Army. And they actually get along fairly well with the Army officers who really do try and integrate them into American society by making them cattle ranchers which works very well, but it works so well that uh, the, the people in the area want their land and their cattle, and the government begins to tax the Indians, mm. so they tax them out of the ability to join that industry. Mm. So the real war, if you will, the real destruction of the Sioux happens through legal and economic and political channels in the next 20 years. Mm. Sobering story. Um, Heather, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I want to thank you very much for it. We even run a little bit over time here, so fascinating is this. Uh, but let me close the interview by asking you our traditional final question, and that is, uh, what exactly are you working on now? Well, you know, I'm tempted to ask you to guess, because it must be fairly <laughs> obvious with the pattern of, of my past work. I'm writing a history of the Republican Party from history. 1854 to 2008. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a big, that's a big project. Well, I hope to have it done before the next election. So it's a, it's wow. a big project. I hope so. I hope so, but too. But I know the Republicans pretty well at this point. Yeah, well, that is a terrific project. Well, I hope you can come on the show when you have that done. Thank you very much. Okay, well, it's a, a pleasure talking to you today, okay? okay. All right, Thank take you. care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Wounded Knee, Party Politics and the Road to an American Massacre. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.